1: think radio this is creature comforts it's the show all about your animals and the animals around you kevin farrell here with dr troy major veterinarian at the animal medical center in jackson and libby hartfield retired director of the mississippi museum of natural science our guest today is james t McCafferty. On today's show, we'll get more familiar with the book, The Bear Hunter. Also, Libby's back, so she can help with wildlife questions, and Dr. Major is here to handle all of your pet concerns. Join our conversation this morning with your phone call, 1-877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is 1-877-672-7464, or send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is James T. McCafferty. On today's show, we're going to get more familiar with the book, The Bear Hunter. Also, Libby's back on the show, so she'll help with any wildlife questions, and Dr. Major is here uh, to handle all of your pet concerns. You can join the conversation this morning with your questions and comments. Uh, with a phone call to one eight seven seven MPB ring. Our number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can send an email. It's animals at MPBonline dot org. You always have two chances each week to hear Creature Comforts Thursday mornings at nine with a repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at six. Uh, so, good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Doing great. Good morning. Uh, Libby, glad to have you back. Uh, Tell us about some things going on at the museum.
2: Okay. Um, Goosebumps. (laughs) The Science of Fear is still the special exhibit to be seen, and it's great fun. You can explore the ideas of what makes you afraid and why does it make you afraid, and the the oddest thing maybe about human beings. Why do we like to be scared? What is it about us that wants to be startled? Every little baby likes to, to, to go boo, although every now and then they cry. And I guess that's kind of explored too. When do you go too far for it to be fun? But a little bit of fright evidently is just a lot of fun for human beings. So the exhibit is fun in that way too. You don't get too scared. And uh, we'll talk a lot more about one event that's upcoming Tuesday, September the 6th, this coming Tuesday at noon. That'll be noon till one o'clock. There is, and we call them lectures, naturalist lectures, but they're not stuffy. They're always lots of fun. They're more of a discussion. But our guest today will be the lecturer on Tuesday to talk more about bear hunting in Mississippi, which was a kind of an ancient well, not ancient, ancient uh, compared to to what we know about geology. But it's it's been a long time. It's a historic um, thing that went on in Mississippi for a long time, and it's um, it's an interesting topic. So we'll talk about it today, and we'll talk about it again Tuesday. And then also September the 10th, which will be a Saturday, there will be a discussion about bees and the importance of bees, and that's from 11 to noon. So.
1: All right. Uh, Just uh, occasionally we like to remind folks uh, who might uh, be listening out of the central Mississippi area, uh, kind of the location and how to get in touch with the museum.
2: Okay, the museum is... At the intersection of Highway 55 going north out of Jackson and Lakeland Drive, if you're familiar with the St. Dominic's area, and mm-hmm. if you know where the the Ag Museum, the Sports Hall of Fame, the Children's Museum, and the Science Museum are all right there together in beautiful LaFleur's Bluff State Park.
1: All right. Very good. So uh, let's welcome again our guest uh, to our show this morning. It's uh, James McCafferty. James, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, so, are you a a native of the Mississippi Delta?
3: Well, I, I was actually born in Tupelo, but we moved to the Delta when I was about a year and a half old. old. Um, my father was a Methodist minister. We moved around quite a bit, but I spent most of my
1: growing up years in the Delta, yes. So tell us, what uh, what was it like? Uh, I imagine uh, close encounters with wildlife? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic.
3: I really didn't have a lot of close encounters with wildlife growing up in the Delta because back then... Uh, It's probably hard for people who didn't grow up in the 50s or 60s who grew up later to appreciate uh, what a change there's been in wildlife in Mississippi since that time. Uh, For instance, unless you were inside the levee along the Mississippi River back then, you rarely saw a deer. Uh, We we hardly ever even saw a track. It was something to look at if you saw a deer track back then. But I did have a, a... really fortunate uh, childhood in the sense that we lived in Leland, Mississippi, on Deer Creek. And I had no idea how fortunate I was at the time because Deer Creek is uh, really uh, biologically and historically uh, a, a real central feature of the Delta. And I spent a lot of time on Deer Creek with my little 10-foot aluminum boat and 3 horsepower Johnson Seahorse outboard going up and down the creek. So, uh I did get to see a lot then, no bears, no deer, but we saw (laughs) mink and uh, raccoons and all kinds of little things.
1: We're going to be talking uh, to James throughout the hour. So if you have a question about uh, the book "The Bear Hunter" about bears in general, see if we can't uh, help you out. Also, Doctor Majors here, ready to answer some pet questions, and we always like wildlife questions and observations as well. Got some open phone lines. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send us an email animals at mpbonline dot org. So you mentioned the importance of Deer Creek. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, Deer Creek
3: is one of the longer streams in the Delta. It begins up in Bolivar County, comes out of Lake Bolivar, as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, and it uh, goes all the way down into Warren County, about half of the Delta, basically. And a lot of the early hunting went along Deer Creek, Uh, a lot of the bear hunting, deer hunting, a lot of the early settlement was along Deer Creek. My book about Bobo, the bear hunter, is actually set north of there along the Sunflower River, which is the other great stream of the Delta, one of the many great streams, I should say. And before we lived in Leland, we lived in Clarksdale, which is on the Sunflower River. So <laughs> I lived on two of the great streams of the Delta that are connected both with the history of the Delta and with the uh, biological background, of the, uh, the hunting particularly.
1: All right. So uh, tell us a little bit then about uh, becoming a writer. Was, were you always interested in, in reading and writing? Or is that something that maybe later, later in life?
3: Pretty much all my life, I always enjoyed books. I always enjoyed history and uh, always wanted to write. Uh, in fact, I, I'm a lawyer by trade and I went to, um, I, went, I, I left the law practice for a number of years and worked as a freelance magazine writer. But when my wife and I, expected our second child we decided I'd better go back and get a real job so <laughs> so I'm just now getting back to writing after about a 20 year hiatus
1: so uh so the book uh, the bear hunter is this historic fiction oh no no
3: it's uh, very much uh, true history it's a i say true in the in the book i say uh i can't promise you everything in it's true but i can promise you i have accurately reflected my sources okay uh, it's about a man named Robert E. Bobo, who was born in 1847 in Cahoma County. Well, actually, born in, P- in Panola County, and they moved into Cahoma County when he was a small boy. He grew up there, and uh, except for his time in the, as a Confederate soldier during the Civil War, he ran off and joined the army when he was about 15. Except for that time, he, was, uh, he spent his whole life in Cahoma County.
1: So what uh, what about this guy uh, interested you enough to, to do the research and then to write the book?
3: Well, you know, I, I really got into the the bear hunting through another man named Colonel James Gordon. Uh, about 30 years ago, my wife and I were living up in Oxford, and I stumbled across some information on James Gordon. Actually, it was in connection with Hulk Collier, who's another famous bear hunter. Mm-hmm. And in my research on Holt Collier, I discovered this character, James Gordon, who had written a lot of stories about bear hunting in the Delta. And I just became obsessed with the topic of old Delta bear hunting and began collecting as much information as I could. And I've, I've got many files filled with old stories by uh, many different individuals. And during the course of my research, I stumbled across the name uh, Bobo. Uh, someone from Indiana was hunting in the Cahoma County area. And they mentioned they had run into a great bear hunter named Bobo. And that, that name jumped out at me because I remembered in my fifth grade class in Clarksdale, one of my friends was Jack Bobo. Hmm. And I contacted Jack, and sure enough, this was his great-great-grandfather. Oh, wow. And so uh, since I had that connection, I pursued the research on Bobo. And really, didn't even think about writing a book on Bobo for a long, until about four years ago.
1: Uh, let's go ahead and take a quick break here. We are on Creature Conference this morning, visiting with author James T. McCafferty about his book, uh, The Bear Hunter. Also, Dr. Major's here if you've got some pet questions. We always like to hear wildlife questions and observations as well. The number to call is one mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 7464 You can also email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more Creature Comforts after this.
2: Support for MPB comes from the nonprofit RAND Gulf States Policy,
4: helping decision makers strengthen public policy and improve communities along the Gulf Coast through objective research and analysis.
1: Learn more at rand.org slash
4: gulfstates.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
1: Welcome back. This is Creature Conference on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield and Dr. Troy Major. Vis- visiting with our guest today, author James T. McCafferty. We're going to be talking about his book, The Bear Hunter. Also, Dr. Majors here, ready to take some pet questions, and we always like to hear wildlife questions and observations as well. We do have a caller on the line, so we will start in Mobile. As we say, good morning to Gene. Hello, Jean. Good morning. Go ahead.
6: Uh, yes, sir. I've got a problem with a cast up on the little apartment I've got, and uh, I'm trying to figure out i get rid of the cast, but I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of the smell of urine. That's permeating up in the apartment and uh, I didn't know where I to throw a bunch of lime under there. What what do you might recommend for that?
7: Right. Have you have you a limit have you fixed it where the cats can't get under there?
6: I got a a dog press charger around there now, they won't be going in there.
7: Okay. Well it's it's good to be able to get them out somehow. Lime will probably li- lime will probably help you. There is a product called of all things urine off. And it's U- not Russian. Off. It's not Russian. It's uh it's uh it's the name it's the name, but it's urine off. Yeah. And uh I think you can buy it in quantity and it does neutralize the urine odor. I would suspect that lime would do much the same and uh I would suggest trying that first, okay?
6: All right, I appreciate your help, man. I was thinking that might do it as you know, they got up over there, and I'm, I got a fish charge.
7: I don't use it anymore, but well. I think to fire me up a couple
6: of feral cats. <laughs> well, you know the the. Uh, I don't want to
7: shoot them. I understand. Back in the back in the old days, in the outhouse, they always used. Uh, Uh, Well,
6: Lord, I remember that, believe it or not. We we had two outhouses. I don't like that (laughs) (laughs) memory.
1: All right. right, uh, Thank you for your call. Thanks for the call, Gene. Uh, This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a pet question for Dr. Major or if you'd like to talk about bears uh, with our guest, author James T. McCafferty. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. Looks like we have another cat question. It comes from Margie, calling in from Helena, Arkansas, this morning. Go ahead, Margie.
5: Okay. Well, my question has to do with I've got a two-year-old cat that's got the tumors, you know, by its lymph nodes in its neck region. And we had it biopsied. I looked over that biopsied and said it was a fungus. First, he thought it was cancer, but he said it was a fungus, sporon, or something like that. Okay. And I was just wondering if there's any kind of treatments or anything for that, or is it just something that in time will look at his whole system? Right. And
7: I, What what does the veterinarian recommend?
5: Well, he told me he didn't know that. He said there is no treatment. Right. He just said put the cat to sleep.
7: Was it trichophyton? Was that the name?
5: maybe that's what it was. It was in that order. Right. It was uh,
7: Right. You know, to treat cats is very difficult a lot of times because they're sensitive to some of the drugs that humans and dogs uh, might be able to tolerate. Uh, if he said it's, you know, not seeing the lab report and all, I would have to kind of defer to what he said. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that they use uh, ketoconazole, which okay. is an antifungal. You might uh-huh. ask him if there's anything at all that could be tried. Uh, ketoconazole okay. would have to be given long-term and would have to monitor the cat to to be sure that uh, the cat was tolerating it. But okay, best of luck. It, it's a little unusual to see a, a fungal infection affecting the lymph nodes uh, like you described. So yeah.
5: best, best well, that's of luck. what he said it was. You know, right. I'm like, what? Well, first they thought it was cancer. Right. Because they would put him on an antibiotic and an anti-inflammatory, and it would go down. Right. But then he'd be off of that; they'd come right back.
7: Right, and may be one of those things that you have to control as best you can, realizing okay. that you may not have a a total cure. Good
1: uh-huh. luck to you. Hi right, Marjorie, thanks talk. for the call. Thanks. This is uh, Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got some open phone lines if you have a pet question, a wildlife question or observation, or a question for our guest. Uh give us a call today at 1877 MPB ring. It's 1877 Six seven two seven four six four. Send us an email: animals at mpbonline dot org. So we're talking about the book "The Bear Hunter" and James. You were telling us about uh, these bear hunts. Was there sort of like a golden era for the, the Delta bear hunt?
3: There actually was the um, the, the time period from around eighteen forty through um, nineteen hundred. I would say was the. Was the heyday of bear hunting really a little earlier than that? But bear hunting continued in the delta until the 1920s. I think it was outlawed in the early about 1932. But um, I, I would like to emphasize uh, something about this book. It's not just about bear hunting. It's really sort of a cultural history of that era in the delta. Uh, there's a lot about the environment in that time. Descriptions of the uh, of the woods, the cane breaks, and the bear hunting uh, was sort of a communal sport in it. They killed a lot of bears, and and a lot of people, when they hear about the number of bears that were killed, they're a little horrified. But you have to realize uh, that there was a whole different view toward predators back then. As late as the uh, early 1930s, the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, for instance, was recommending the eradication of the few wolves we had left in the state. That was considered a conservation measure. And back then, these these individuals individuals were opening up uh, farms and plantations in the Delta there were there was no fencing their hogs ran loose in the woods and the bears uh, decimated their hog population destroyed their cornfields and they started hunting these bears as much out of self defense as anything else i mean i mean to protect their property uh, the the bears really didn't pose a threat to the human life but they uh, they started hunting them to protect the property and for sport of course and a lot of them just really enjoyed it if you know people who like to to run dogs you know how much they enjoy it and it it's just becomes a, something they want to do a lot
1: but i think uh, that's probably as you as you say one of the important things when you're writing a historical book like that is to help people understand as you're saying there was a different attitude a diff- you know a, right. uh, it was a different time and so h- helping people understand what was going on uh, gives them a better understanding of, of the subject right uh, we'll talk more about the book uh, throughout the hour. We've got a couple more phone calls on the line, so let's head back to the phones as we go to Jane in Leake County. Good morning, Jane.
8: Good morning. Um, I have sort of an unusual question, I guess. Um, I helped incubate some turkey eggs that uh, my my brother in law had some turkeys in a pen that he was uh, keeping for like just a hobby and um, then the hen started laying eggs, but raccoons would get in there and and take the eggs every time the little hen would try to sit. So I took them, and I don't know what I was thinking, but anyway, Hmm. I've hatched a beautiful gobbler and a sweet little hen that appears to be blind, and um, I'm feeling a little guilty because I incubated the thing and now i don't know what to do with the blind turkey and i've uh my vet here really doesn't want to fool with it he said they had decided not to work with poultry anymore or whatever so i guess i'm trying to figure out how am i going to keep a blind turkey she she struggles to find her food but if i have her in a small a small area she can fumble around and find it but she sometimes she just turns in circles i just was wondering um, if you had any suggestions for something like that.
7: You know, this is a one of the things that's hard to hard to address in a way. I know you're already attached to the turkey, or you wouldn't be calling. Uh, it's it's sad, but in the wild, this turkey would be uh, deceased. And uh, I would say that uh, in answer to your question, if you're willing to commit the time, effort, and keep this bird uh, isolated probably from other birds that that might be the solution on the other hand you don't want it to suffer so if uh, I, I wish I had better information for you but again it, there, there are a lot of animals that are blind that are kept as uh, either pets or uh, kept uh, alive simply because you're able to manage it but uh, it is a difficult question one that you've got to answer yourself and uh, I sympathize with you and certainly thank you for your call. But it's it's not an easy choice if you have to put the, the turkey down. But you may have to. But if you're willing to
1: take care of it and
7: nurse it and provide for it, why not?
1: All right, uh, Jane, thanks for the call. Let's get another caller in as we go this time to Mac, who's called in today. Good morning, Mac.
6: How you all doing today?
1: Good. What's your question?
6: Uh, I have a question for Doc over there. Uh, my wife's cat, about eight years old, has gotten here in the last, I'd say, six months where when she starts petting him, he'll lay there for a minute and then just all of a sudden, for no reason, turn around and just bite the fire out of it. Right, right. Okay. I was wondering, wondering what would cause that.
7: Certainly a disposition change. It makes you wonder. You say about eight years old? Yes, sir. Uh, I noticed you said your wife's cat. I like that. <laughs> uh, anyway, exactly. uh, what, what I would have to say is that, number one, there may be some uh, pain associated with it. A lot of cats develop a tendency to bite or to let you know if you go much past mid-back toward the rear end. Uh Uh, Now, this cat may tolerate being petted on the head and shoulders, but uh, there's no reason to be bitten. And I guess the question would be, is there anything that you can do? Uh, There is a pheromone collar that you could uh, put on the cat that might help to calm it a little bit. But it may be more of a psychological thing that uh, you just have to bear with.
6: But I know she raised him from birth. Cause right. Uh, the mom and cat got run over by accident, and she literally that cat was three days old. Right. And she took it in and has raised it ever since.
7: Did you have any other kittens with it at that time?
6: Yeah, there were three all together. Uh, well, actually, there was four, but one of them didn't make it. And the other the other two are with other families and right? They, they ain't have no
7: problems with theirs. Right. Uh, sometimes when cats kittens are separated and raised either on a bottle or whatever, sometimes they will develop some psychological issues but this sounds kind of late in life to have that type thing. Uh, always be careful and when I pet a cat at the clinic, some people say I pet the cats too hard but they kind of like it, most of them, but always be careful going back past past the rib cage, in other words, mid-back. Okay. And uh, I, other than the pheromone collar, which your vet may be able to supply for you, uh, it's a calming collar, uh, and it might
1: help. So
7: All right. good luck to you. Thanks, sir.
1: Thanks for the call, Mac. This is Creature Conference on MPB Think Radio. We're taking pet questions this morning, talking about wildlife, and talking uh, with author James McCafferty about his book, the bear hunter. So uh, we've got some open phone lines. So if you'd like to join the conversation, the number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So send us an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, so James, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about you—you uh, you, you kind of found about about Mister Bobo and and realized you had more of a connection than you might have thought. Uh, tell us about the the research process. What goes into to digging up the the stories and things to write a book like this?
3: Well, I started with the old outdoor magazines from the eighteen uh, hundreds. There were three big ones: Turf Field and Farm, American Field, and um, and the uh, and Forest and Stream. And I just when I was living in Oxford, when my wife and I were first married back in the '80s, I would order these books through interlibrary loan. These volumes, these bound volumes, of these magazines. Some of them you can get a microfilm, but I would get them through interlibrary loan. And I quite literally just turned the pages in these magazines. Some of them had indexes, but they or they were um, sometimes hard to. Uh, it was hard to find things in the index sometimes, and I, I literally just turned pages the research is much easier now with the Internet. In fact, a lot of these people wrote under pseudonyms back then, and it was considered uh, sort of ungentlemanly to sign your own name to an article back in those days. And I've been able to discover who some of these uh, writers were by putting clues in the uh, you know, Googling clues on the Internet, and and that's been a lot of fun. And one thing I've really enjoyed, I've been able to tell some uh, uh, Parsons about their ancestors and their bear hunting exploits. People didn't even know the ancestors did these things. And uh, there's a lady in Madison, for instance, I've supplied her with three or four articles about her ancestor, who was a bear hunter up in Cahoma County, a guy uh, who was written about a good bit by uh, Colonel Gordon up in Pontiac. I mentioned earlier.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you're saying that these are really kind of festive affairs. If you could maybe kind of set the scene, uh, if we were back in the day uh, participating in a bear hunt, what would it be like? Well,
3: uh, the things that characterized the bear hunt back then were dogs and horses. Um, usually they'd have at least 20, sometimes as many as 40 or 50 dogs because they were always trying to, to train young dogs because bear hunting was tough on dogs. You may have seen now nowadays people who hog hunt sometimes put these Kevlar vests on the dogs so they won't get hurt. Well, they didn't have Kevlar vests for the dogs back then. A lot of dogs got killed bear hunting. The life of a bear dog was about two to three years. Uh, so they were, all, they had, that's why they had the big packs because they were always trained the dogs. They would follow the pack on horses, and the hunters would spread out through the woods. You have people that hunt hogs and deer this way now, up in the Delta and places. Uh, They used hunting horns to signal each other, and uh, interestingly, uh, the Bobo family still has the hunting horn that belonged to their great-great-grandfather, the bear hunter. They've got his horn. They've got his uh, 4440 Winchester that he used. And they have a an old uh, Civil War bayonet that he used for his knife, his bear knife. Uh, they uh, uh, the Delta was characterized then not only by much larger timber than we have now. Uh, one reference site, site talks of uh, huge oaks with trees with the limbs starting at 60 or 70 feet above the ground. That's how big the trees were. I have a account of a of a uh, yellow poplar in in Holmes County that was 12 feet in diameter. Wow. Uh, but besides the huge timber, the cane break characterized the uh, the Delta back then. These uh, huge stands of cane, impenetrable, uh, sometimes two miles wide, six miles wide. I have an, uh, a description of one that stretched from the present town of Bobo, south of Clarksdale, all the way down to Parchman Penitentiary. In fact, uh, uh, Bob Bobo did a lot of his hunting on what is now Parchment Penitentiary. To get an idea, on my, on my website, I've got a picture of a cane break. There's a man on horseback riding alongside one on an agricultural field where the plowing has stopped from the field. On one side and to the left is the cane, and the cane towers over his head. The man's on horseback, and his head only goes to about half as high as the cane. Hmm. And my website is www.canebreaks dot com www, excuse me dot dot com so that should be easy to remember but there is a picture there of the of the Cambridge.
1: We are going to take another quick break. When we get back, we'll continue talking to James McCafferty about his book, The Bear Hunter. We've got some uh, phone calls to get to and a couple of emails as well. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Uh, join the conversation with your phone call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more. After this, we'll get to some phone calls.
4: The conventions are over. Candidates have been nominated with less than three months to Election Day. We don't know what's going to happen between now and then, but we will be here to help you understand it.
0: Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio.
9: A few years back, eight students chose three different paths. Community college. My name is Jacob Miley.
4: Hi, my name is Nancy Chen.
9: The University of Maryland. Reese Hall.
4: Carrie Chung. Alejandro Gonzalez.
9: And private colleges. Evan Bonham.
4: Margie Fuchs. Becca Arbacher. I graduated in May.
0: Were they the right choices? Our college project reunion later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio.
1: back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and we're visiting with our guest today, author James T. McCafferty. His book is called The Bear Hunter, and we've been talking about that. James, before the break, uh, you talked about uh, cane break. Uh, help me out. What What is cane? Cane is a actually a species of grass,
3: as I understand it. And it's very similar to the ornamental bamboo that grows in neighborhoods around probably any, everybody who's listening to the show has probably seen it around their town. Uh, the species that was in the Delta, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, was Arundinaria gigantea. Hmm. And it, river cane is another name for it, giant cane. They called it blue cane up there. In fact, there's a, there's a road up there called Blue Cane Road up uh, in Cahoma County, Bolivar County. And I passed the Blue Cane Water Association when I was up in Tallahatchie <laughs> County the other day. So back then it was a, such a prominent feature, we can hardly believe, uh, hardly understand now how prominent it was when we don't see it anymore.
1: So, how was it uh, significant uh, with wildlife in general and bears in particular?
3: Well, the cane was significant for a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned earlier, the woods were so very thick, they were a mature forest. Uh, old growth. And if you read the descriptions, one description uh, I have by a man named Phelan from Memphis, P-H-E-L-A-N, he describes going down into the into the big delta woods and how quiet and still it was because there was very little for the animals to eat in there. Because most animals are creatures of the edge. They like an opening. And that's, that's where the blackberries grow, the uh, small fruit bearing plants grow. And so uh, the animals wildlife tend to congregate around these openings, and the cane grew where there was an opening. Uh, cane needed sunlight; it also did not tolerate flooding well. So when you found when you could find the cane, you knew you were, there was. Usually, the cane grew where a tornado had gone through, or where there had been a forest fire, or something like that, and cleared out the area. And it had to be on high ground so it wouldn't be flooded every year. And the the. Uh, the bears didn't they didn't go inside the cane that much unless they were being chased because it was so thick bears didn't find it uh easy to go in it either but they would go in there to hide but primarily uh it formed an open area in the woods and along the edges of the cane is where the animals were but like i said they would when they pursued they would go into the cane
1: Uh, we've got some phone calls on the line so let's uh, start again with phones uh, in madison as we say hello to angela go ahead angela Hi, how are you? Good.
4: I have a Pomeranian um, that has a nail bed fungal infection, and I was wondering how I could prevent this from happening again. The vet said that he probably got it from um, scratching around or digging around in the yard.
7: Is it just one nail?
4: Yeah, just one nail.
7: And it's better now?
4: Making it a lot. Well, I just got back from the vet, and they gave me... Um, some antibiotics and prednisone to stop the itching or what have you. But, you know, I've had the dog for a while, and this is the first time this has happened. So I didn't know if it was
7: something that he may have gotten into. Right. And to tell you whether it's a fungal infection or a bacterial infection, obviously the vet uh, sent uh, antibiotic home with some steroids. One of the things I would do, which seems to help, would be, and this is an old-fashioned remedy, but take uh, Epsom salts. Uh Uh, In warm water, something Uh you could stand to keep your hand in, Uh and soak that whole foot uh, for several days, in other words, for 10, 15 minutes at a time, and Uh see if that doesn't help with the swelling but also helps take away the irritation. You can rinse the foot off after that, but certainly see how the antibiotic and steroid, uh, uh, how that works. But uh, probably got it from outside, but a lot of times they will lick excessively then, Once you get an infection around the nail, one thing that you don't want is for osteomyelitis, which certainly an infection could go on into the bone from that nail because it's an extension and attaches to bone. So you sure don't want that to progress. So keep in consultation with your vet, but try the
1: soak and see if that helps some.
5: Okay. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's move on next. We go to Patsy in Meridian. Good morning, Patsy.
9: Good morning. Thank you for your program. We really enjoy it. Good to hear that. I was uh, I was coming home one night. It was uh, already a little after dark, and there was a big cat went in front of me. It wasn't a bobcat. And I looked it up and, and in the description that I had of it and everything, and it said that Mississippi is now having a Panther, Florida Panthers. And it looked identical to the picture that I've seen. Uh, has, have y'all had any reports of any Panthers in Mississippi?
2: Uh, we always have reports of Panthers <laughs> in Mississippi. And, okay. Uh, late at night, usually. Makes and feel a little better. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but, and you know, Patsy, I've seen something that was unusual, too, and I think Troy has, too. But... Um, <laughs> We need a picture or a footprint. Uh, what I would say is, you know, if if you've got a trail camera, put it out where you saw the cat. If you um, can identify where it walked, try to get a footprint. Okay.
9: I know exactly where it went, and uh, we do have a field camera. I haven't thought about doing that. Of course, it's on someone else's property.
2: Yeah, you might talk to them. They might be really pleased to be able right. to put out a camera and see.
9: Do they usually... Come back to
2: that same area. I, I don't know enough to it, know. There probably
7: there probably was a creek or wooded area along where you where you saw this animal. It is. It's an it uh, a
2: creek, uh, and it I, yeah,
7: and
9: also I, has a big pun There just I, just
7: I fun think they If if in fact it's a cat of some sort, maybe a panther. I can't question that. It's kind of elusive, like Bigfoot or uh, skunk ape or something like right. that. We haven't we haven't seen a whole lot of proof. About that in Mississippi, but uh, be great to have a, a camera set up where you could possibly uh, see if that particular animal came back. So, okay. uh, thanks for your call. It's, it's interesting, certainly.
2: Okay. All Thank right. You. Yeah. Let us know if you if you get a picture.
1: Thanks for the call, Patsy. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to call in to join the conversation, it's one eight seven seven MPB ring one 1-877- eight seven seven. 672 You can send us an email to animals at org. Mark sends an email that says, the bears are doing very well in many places around the country, too well in some. What's the state of the black bear here in Mississippi?
3: That's a good question. Um, you know, that's really sort of outside my area of expertise. I can tell you just anecdotal things. Uh, I've had a couple of friends show me videos on their phones of bears they've seen when they were hunting. I, one particular one was in a pecan orchard up in the Delta. He, was, he would sit up and rake the pecans toward him and then eat them. Um, my nephew lives in Greenville, Mississippi, he's a runner, and he was in a in a um, relay race up on the on the levee up north of Greenville, and during his leg of
2: the relay, a bear ran right in front of him, across <laughs> the levee. Yeah, and we do get many, many substantiated with photographs and footprints and claw marks and everything else of bear. And gosh, nearly all parts of the state, but mostly around waterways, of course, any place that's um, got big woods and not a lot of people you're more likely to have them but um <clears throat> along Pascagoula river along the mississippi river several great photographs people have taken of bear swimming from louisiana across the river or leaving and going back to louisiana so they're definitely all around the state and i don't have the numbers anymore uh you know when i was when i was working in the department of wildlife i i would have known more about numbers but they definitely have increased a lot in the last 30 years the last
7: time our biologist was here uh i think the numbers yeah. were in the 80 to 100 bear that were semi-resident however they cross the mississippi river readily so it's really hard to keep up with the actual number yeah mm-hmm.
2: brad young was on the show when i was right. st- when i was right. out yeah
1: so wait, was your nephew, you said, in the race? Yes,
3: my nephew, and uh, interestingly, his uh, little sister a few years ago was out at a hunting camp with a, a friend of hers and their family, her family, and she saw a female bear with two cubs mm-hmm. out there. which. Uh, I always think that's not fair because I I drive all through the Delta all the time. I try, to, I try to time my trips for the early morning, late afternoon, and I keep my eyes peeled. I've never seen a bear in Mississippi.
1: And I imagine the uh, the time in the second part of the race was maybe a little bit faster than it was before he saw the bear.
3: Well, I think he slowed down and crossed in front of him.
1: <laughs> uh, let's invite Bill in from Greenwood this morning on the phone lines. Go ahead, Bill.
3: Yes, yeah, so I was wondering, uh,
9: were the bears... Had into extinction? When were they reintroduced? And also, uh, has uh, wolves and panthers been reintroduced to Mississippi?
3: Well, I can tell you what I've learned in my research. Um, I know a survey was done in the 1930s by the state, and uh, back then they still found uh, what they call stepping paths of bears. Uh, bears, during, the male bear during the mating season will has a little area he walks back and forth on. It's kind of analogous to a scrape a buck deer would make, I guess. And the bear will walk back and forth this distance. It's usually near a bio or a slough or something near water. And they they still could see the bear's stepping paths over around Eagle Lake. Uh, And some people say the bears were totally uh, extirpated from the state in the, maybe in the 30s or 40s. I don't think so. I think there are always a few uh, here and there. Because all my life, and I was born in 1954, and all my life I've heard stories of uh, bears being seen. There's A a picture was in the State Wildlife Magazine in the 1960s of a cub up a tree in the square at Raymond, Mississippi. So I think they've been here all along. I think they're making a comeback, though, now, uh, partially because the habitat
1: is making a comeback. All right, Bill, we appreciate your call. Uh, Let's take one final break this hour. This is Creature (laughs) Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We'll be back to wrap up the program after this short break. (music) Thank <music> you.
0: The conventions are over. Candidates have been nominated. With less than three months to Election Day, we don't know what's going to happen between now and then, but whatever it is, we'll be here to help you understand it. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. Today is Thursday,
9: but you know what tomorrow is? It's Friday, and that means high school football. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tomorrow night at 10 right here on MPB Think Radio.
1: And welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest is James McCafferty. We've been talking about his book, The Bear Hunter, also taking some pet questions. Here's an email from Joe who says, I have a female cat, 14 years old, who's had ear mites for the past few years. We've used... Eratomite, but it's not been effective. We treat her using the initial schedule of every other day until the mites appear to be gone. Then we switch to the preventive schedule of every 15 days. The mites keep coming back, so we repeat the treatments. This last series, we used a preventative schedule of every 10 days, but the mites are getting worse, and she's shaking her head and scratching her ears, and her ears are very dirty. Is there another treatment that we could use?
7: Well, first of all, I would like to see a verification that the cat actually had ear mites. Uh, Most of the ear mite medications are very effective. Uh, A lot of people, and I'm not doubting this, but a lot of people will say my dog or cat has ear mites when they see black wax or uh, discharge from the ear. And it's not necessarily ear mites. Uh, Cats are very prone to ear mites, but it would be strange with the amount of treatment that this cat has had uh, that continue to have ear mites. Now, I could be totally wrong, but a lot of times... Uh, unless uh your veterinarian is making that diagnosis, I would say uh, possibly not ear mites.
1: All righty. Looks like we've got some calls on the line. Let's start in uh Clinton. Mary Beth has a bear story for us. Go ahead.
4: Um last I think it was like this past summer, whenever there was that bear sighting over off like Pinehaven Boulevard in Clinton. Yes Pine Haven. Yes. Okay. I have property uh, 10 acres, we live on 10 acres out that way. And like that afternoon, I was out picking berries with my daughter. She's four. and We have blackberries. And I heard, I kept hearing this woofing noise. We're out there picking berries, and I'm getting kind of nervous looking around. I can't, you know, there's woods around us, but it's not thick wood. But I keep hearing this woofing noise and looking around. I can't see anything. It ended up being there were vultures coming up and down. There was a tree right there, and they were going down to the road and back up. Every time they whooshed, you know, they would flash their wings, it would go whoosh, and they would be going up and down. But it scared me to death. I thought, there, there is a bear out here, and I'm going to get eaten. <laughs> I knew I would get eaten, but, and I knew I kept telling my daughter, I was like, just stand out here because, you know, I'm not going to run from anything that can outrun me. But, Anyway, is a funny story.
2: I appreciate you, Colin, because so often, you know, we get something in our mind, and then we're going to see it or hear it, but oftentimes people misinterpret sounds they hear in the woods, <laughs> and it's, it's hard to change their mind, and I've done the same. So I appreciate that, Mary Beth. Thank you.
1: All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, let's go on. We'll go next to uh, Bruce in Poplarville. Good morning, Bruce.
6: Yes, sir. Uh, I always wanted to tell a story about me and my brother was traveling, South on Highway 53 in Hancock County, going toward Guffport. And we seen something big black run out the road, thought it was like a cow at first. We got closer, and there was a freight truck coming the other way. And my brother said, That's a bear. We got closer, and it was a big old black bear, and it loped across the road. And there was a place there where the fence was kind of down a little bit, but that bear hit that fence and and tore about half of it down and uh, I put it on Facebook but I never did get no response like I guess like it was a everyday thing or something. But we'd never seen a bear in Mississippi before but this was a big old black bear.
2: Oh, weren't you lucky? That's a great story. Yeah, too bad you hadn't gotten a picture of it. But it's hard to take a picture that quick.
6: Yeah, he was running too. <laughs>
2: All right,
1: Bruce, thanks for calling in and sharing that with us. Let's get one final call in. We go to Bill in Greenwood. Go ahead, Bill.
9: Oh, yes. Well, when I was a little kid in 1962, we were down on the Sunflower River uh, out from Indianola in a town called Kenlock and I saw all these big tracks. It looked like it was several of them. And I asked my dad, I said, what kind of tracks are these? He said, these are bears. And I said, well, I thought there wasn't none around there. He said, well, I didn't think there was either, but there certainly was. There was a
6: lot of bad tracks in the mud, so I just thought I'd let you know about that.
3: 62.
1: <laughs> All right. Bill, appreciate the call. Good, uh, good story there. Thanks, Bill. So, um, James, you're going to be at the museum talking about your book uh, Tuesday. That's correct. Uh, uh, November. Tuesday, September 6th at noon. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you'll be talking about uh, in addition to the book.
3: Well, I'll uh, be talking a lot about the same kind of things we've been talking about today. And I've, I've got a couple of children's books, too, uh, that uh, I'll probably talk a little bit about. Uh, they're both about Holt Collier, who's another bear hunter. One's, one's the story of how the teddy bear got its name, the Teddy Roosevelt bear hunt. Uh, and I've got a PowerPoint presentation that I'll show. It's got some interesting pictures in it uh, that are connected with the old bear hunting culture. And I would like to say that I'll be in Bay St. Louis at the library down there. Uh, on September 13th. That's a Tuesday, too, I believe. I think it's a week from, uh, matter of fact, it's a week from the day I'll be at the Wildlife Museum. I'll be there from 1145 to 1 at the library there.
2: And I've got to say those children's books have been great gifts. Kids always love, boys and girls, always love those bear books. They're wonderful. Thank you. True stories.
1: Uh, just got about a minute left. I remember that you had mentioned that you actually knew one of Mr. Bobo's descendants. Well, did the I, did the family know much about? I mean, was that a good source of information? They
3: they knew a good bit about him. Um, generally, if you don't write things down, though, your family's going to lose it within about three generations. About the grandchildren, the great grandchildren for sure will forget it. Um, so, and I'm speaking to myself too. We need to write everything down that we know about our ancestors, so our children know about it. But I, uh, there are uh, four uh, great-great-grandsons of the bear hunter still alive. Um, one lives in Memphis, one lives in Jackson, Mississippi, two live in Clarksdale. And his daughter lives in, I mean, a great-granddaughter, grandda- great she's 94 years old, she's the oldest living descendant, she lives in California. Hmm. And real quickly, any any projects on the in the works? Well, I'm working on a book on Paul Rainey now, who lived in northeast Mississippi. He started bear hunting in uh the Delta and took his bear dogs to hunt lions in Africa. So oh, wow. it, it connects Mississippi and Africa and a lot of points in between. <laughs> and there's, there's, I've got a lot of information in facts. A caller mentioned wolves earlier. I've got a blog on the red wolf on my website canebreaks.com. So people might enjoy
1: reading that. All right, very good. Thanks for being with us this morning. That is going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Funding is provided in part by the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science Foundation and contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Jonas Adams and our call screener today was Sherita Brent. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major and our guest James McCafferty, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's empty. MPB's Season Pass with Jay White and Sam Wells. That's followed by Southern Remedy at eleven. We'll be back next Thursday at nine for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.